Good evening and welcome here to 5 by 15 uh, for what is going to be a completely fascinating and a fairly different sort of hour for us because we're going to be concentrating on a couple of books, one in particular that's been written by the journalist Chris Blackhurst, who is one of Britain's foremost financial journalists as well as one time being the editor of the Independent newspaper. Now, Chris told me the story of this book, Too Big to Jack quite a long time ago, I think before the book was finished. And to say that my jaw hit the floor is a kind of uh, underestimation of my reaction to it. It is the story of the most appalling banking scandal that you have ever heard of, which takes us from New York to Mexico and back to London very significantly, because here in London, we've sort of whitewashed this one. And he's going to be in conversation with someone who's very familiar to 5 by 15 audiences, our friend Oliver Bullo, whose most recent book is called Butler to the World. And Butler to the World looks at why London has become really a kind of sink pot of corruption and corrupt practices and has allowed the world's really dirty money to swim around with very, very little regulation. So I know this is going to be a brilliant conversation. We're going to hear about the story of the book and then come into all the stuff that's in Oliver's book. And I couldn't be more thrilled to have them both together. Very simple format. They'll talk for about 45 minutes. So do start putting your questions. And I know you will have a lot. Get them into the chat as soon as you can. The books are available from our bookseller, Newham Books, and the details of both the books will be in the chat. So I couldn't recommend this one too highly. And as I say, Butler to the World is also a fantastic read and full of extraordinary stories about what people get away with in our country, in our name. So no further ado, over to you, Oliver. Thank you very much for hosting tonight's event. Um, thanks very much, Rosie. Thanks very much for everyone for being here. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy this this book. Well, enjoyed if that's the word. It is, it's a bit like um, you know, one of those John Le Carre books that combines um sort of really grotesque gangster behaviors. And then you realize by the end of the book that the seriously grotesque behavior, that the kind of grotesque squared is all taking place in the very tall towers in Canary Wharf or the City of London. It is written like a thriller and absolutely brilliant and really pleased to have the chance to ask Chris some questions about it. Now, at the heart of the book, this is a story about HSBC, um, uh, sort of everyone knows it now, but it has an interesting backstory that I didn't really know anything about. So before we get too deeply into the skullduggery, Chris, can you tell us a bit about um, the world's local bank, TM, um, HSBC? Where did it come from and how did it end up being in Mexico? Um, well, very simply, uh, HSBC's Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation um, was founded in Hong Kong in the 1860s um, by a man called um, Thomas, Thomas Sutherland, who was a Scot. And um, it started, and this is relevant to the book because it's one of those strangely joyous moments when you find history repeating itself. Basically, um, at that time in Hong Kong, the, the number one trade was opium. And they were pushing opium from India um, into China um, in return for porcelain, silver, silks, etc. And um, the Chinese eventually woke up to this, this habit and 
realised that they actually had a drug problem, a serious drugs problem in China back in the 1860s. Um, and uh, they told them to stop. And the reason this is relevant to HSBC was that the founder of HSBC was financing the, the trade. This does not appear in HSBC's official history. Um, I have to tell you, they gloss over this. They refer to him as a, a sort of a great entrepreneur and a great visionary, et cetera, et cetera. But the trade was opium. And um, what was interesting was that the Chinese effectively ordered a stop, um, told them to stop. Um, the British government, the British Navy, Her Majesty's Navy, went into bat for the opium financiers in Hong Kong. I mean, can you imagine if that happened today? Well, in a way it does, as we'll see in the book, but <laughs> quite extraordinary. So there were two opium wars, um, which we fought and we won. China was a very different military power from what it is today. Uh, we won, and um, China was humiliated. Um, but that was the beginning of HSBC that they got the, and it, from then it became known as its nickname across the banking world was Honkers and Shankers. Um, and it acquired this strange culture, which uh, I, I go into some detail, which is um, they thought they did, they believed it was based on sound Scottish banking principles. Um, the idea that Scots are very good at banking and they're very good at managing money. And I mean, it's a bit of a stereotype, um, a bit of a joke as well, when you realise what happened with Royal Bank of Scotland um, and HBOS. And um, they, uh, they created this culture of being extremely disciplinarian, almost, almost running the bank on military lines. They didn't call their their, their staff weren't called managers, they were called officers. Um, uh, they were, lots of them were single men. They, they actively recruited um, single men from English public schools. Uh, they didn't like people who'd particularly been to university. They wanted them, um, if I can use this language, they wanted rugger buggers, basically. Um, and it was like a mirror image of the army. And they even had a, they all lived together. When they were in, uh, at a, a branch in some far outpost in Thailand or wherever it was, Malaysia, they would live in these places called chummeries, which were like officers' messes. And um, even until the very early 1980s, in theory, you still had to ask the chairman's permission to, to if you were an international officer, uh, you had to ask his his permission um, to to marry, um, because they really frowned upon this sort of thing. So that's the background. And I think in in the UK, we I mean, though it was a a, a big bank and a, and a I suppose a British bank in the UK, we kind of became aware of it when it bought the Midland, right? And then it became a high yeah. street, and you started seeing it all over the place. And I think if I remember right, that was the late nineties, and that yeah. really was part of this huge expansion that this very staid you know steady institution suddenly kind of just just took on the world right yeah what what my book uh, the, the sort of recurring theme in my book is um which is a recur you know is the theme with our with our society um we have an obsession about about big um 
uh, we we rate houses. If uh, if it's a big house, it's a good house. If it's a big car, it's a good car. Big boat, big salary, big business. Um, we never really pay much attention to how hard it is to manage a business as it gets bigger and bigger. And what happened in HSBC's case was that in 2002, they were named the best run bank in the world. Now, you would think that would be enough. That would be, wow, you can't do better than that. That's three Michelin stars. You're the best run bank in the world. And they were all over the world. I mean, not all over the world, but they were in the main places. But they took a conscious decision. It's a it was, it was, you know, they actually took this decision. They weren't satisfied with being the best run bank in the world. And by the way, they were making a fortune. They wanted to be the biggest bank in the world. And that meant that they had to really go head to head with Citigroup in America and Bank of America. And that meant that they had to buy things and they had to buy lots of things. They had to buy lots of banks across the world in places where they, not been. And that's how they came to be in Mexico. They they saw Mexico, as did a lot of people, as the sort of um, the main economy in Latin America. Um, and But by the time that they decided to go for Mexico, uh, the their rivals had got in there before them. Um, you would also think that there would be warning signals, and there were warning signals, but if you're going to go into Mexico, which already had a massive crime problem with the drug cartels and corruption, you ought to be really, really careful. Um, they ignored this and, and improbably. And uh, again, you know, I've already said the word he in relation to chairman, but this is a bank like a lot of banks that are run, frankly, primarily by men. Um, so they they were so obsessed with getting into Mexico, and the only bank they could find was that was available was a bank called Bital, which was the fifth biggest bank in Mexico, number five. Um, and it probably they gave this project. I mean, you can't but make this up, really. Um, and when I discovered this, I sort of fell off my chair. Um, they gave it the title Project High Noon. Um, which immediately conjures up images of Gary Cooper in Westerns. Why they did this, I have no idea. Um, but they called it Project High Noon. They were so determined to get into Mexico. And the, the relevance of that is it shows how determined they were. At the same time, there were people in the bank and outside the bank saying, whoa, do you realise what you're getting into? This is a bank that has hardly any compliance, uh, doesn't, uh, it's a tiny bank, in, and mainly in the northwest of Mexico, which is actually the drug country. And that's what happened. There's this, there's this wonderful quote that you've got. I'm just going to read this out. You said, um, what was the root cause of this furious rush? This is talking about the expansion that you're saying. And certainly, how is HAC going to ensure, going to adhere to the same solid, if unadventurous principles it had seen through nearly a century of banking? The answer to the first question is group. The answer to the second is that it self-evidently couldn't. And you know, you're so in, in Mexico, you're talking about this amazing transformation of this staid, you know, very careful, very well-run bank 
into this yeah. totally reckless organisation. I mean, in- incredibly reckless. Yeah, uh, uh, that's right. And while they were buying in Mexico, they were buying all over the place. So they bought a huge business in America called Household, um, massive consumer lending business. And they were buying and buying and buying. And really, they just weren't managing, in Vital's case, what they bought. And... Um, two things here. One was that the Mexican authorities, they assumed that the mighty HSBC, with all its pedigree, um, you know, from London, history, et cetera, et cetera, that they would bring in their own rules and standards. Well, frankly, that never happened. Um, and the second thing was that they realized very quickly that Mexico was a, literally a gold mine. And they set about, I mean, the, the very first thing they did almost was build an enormous tower in the center of Mexico City, where in fact, what they should, which is part of the, the male banker's obsession with having huge fallacies in the sky. I mean, they all go in for this sort of stuff. And there's a section in the book about this, but they, um, what they should have been doing is putting their house in order with the thing they bought, but they didn't do that. Um, and then the ultimate irony, I suppose, is that throughout this period, the bank was being run by Stephen Green, who um, uh, in the city was referred to as God's banker because he is actually an ordained priest um, and he preaches from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And he's written books and I've interviewed him on, on ethical capitalism. Um, so he was at the top of the bank. He was in charge. Um, but it just gives you a statistics in my head. Um, I think this is right. They went from 167,000, which is a lot, lot of people, 167,000 employees to 333,000 employees in the space of three or four years. Now, that's 333,000 people. And they did this in three a very short periods of time. How you manage that, how you control what they're doing, I've no idea. And those people are not all um, rugby-playing ex-public schoolboys, right? I mean, presumably, eventually, you run out of rugby-playing ex-public schoolboys and have to broaden, widen your, your search criteria. Yeah, what they what they did in Mexico, and this, this inflamed the, the Mexicans because they didn't put in... Um, uh, they didn't put in permanent staff from London. Um, they weren't permanent. Um, they were on rotation. And there's a part of the book where I talk about one of their bank supervisors being invited to dinner at this guy's apartment in Mexico City. And the guy's sort of showing off about the apartment. And what he doesn't realise is that the bank supervisor had been there about six months previously with the same identical furniture and the paintings on the wall because it it was a leased apartment for yeah. their senior people, and he just found this insulting. Yeah. He felt really insulted, and as he said in the book, they never bothered to learn the language; um, they just didn't bother. Um, and uh, what happened was that Vital, which became HSBC Mexico, um, the the Sinaloa drugs cartel. Um, run by Chapo, El Chapo, who in a way 
and this is a mirror of HSBC. Some people might find that an odd thing to say, but if you if you strip away Chapo's murderous barbarism and the horrible things the cartels do, and they are totally abhorrent, um, behind all that is actually a massive business. And he had the same business ambition as HSBC. He wanted to be the number one drugs baron in the world. And they wanted to be the number one bank, and they all came together. Let's hear a little bit about El Chapo before we before we move on to this beautiful friendship that arose between the two <laughs> sides here. Um, talk a little bit about what you know, El, El Chapo. Where talk about where is Sinaloa? What is the Sinaloa cartel? Uh, Sinaloa, it's in northwest Mexico. It's very rugged mountain country. Um, lots of it is jungle. Um, very hard to penetrate. Um, feels a long way from anywhere, certainly a long way from Mexico City. Um, the um, uh, the main town uh, up there is a town called uh, Colculacan. Um, I think I pronounced it right. And um, Chapo was uh, uh, the, the, the main crop. And again, it turned, comes full circle. So in the late 19th century, um, they put railways through parts of northern Mexico, and Mexico, you know, became a bit industrialized. It was still very um, agricultural. Um, the people who put the railways in were Chinese, um, and they brought with them, as a form of relaxation, their opium. Um, and they brought it, and they brought some seeds. And they planted the seeds in the soil, and I don't think they were expecting very much at all. But to their delight, they discovered that this part of Mexico has the ideal climate for growing opium and uh, marijuana. And the drugs trade um, is far more profitable. I mean, supplying drugs to the United States, put it this way, is a far more profitable business than selling lemons and oranges in the local market. And this became the number one crop of this part of Mexico, was growing marijuana, growing opium, and that's what they did. And Chapo, his father was a uh, comprador, a, a peasant who was a, a he, he grew the raw, the raw drugs. Um, he beat Chapo. Chapo left home, I think, at 15. He certainly didn't have any education beyond that, only hardly any education. And he moved, he, he was called Chapo means shorty. Um, it's a nickname, and he, he's five foot six inches tall. And he started out at the bottom um, as a, a, you know, helping the drug gangs. Um, but he showed himself to have two things, um, incredible um, organizational skills and also um, uh, uh, with that uh, and, and also uh, enormous audacity uh, and aggression. I mean um, he personally killed people if they crossed his path um, but he proved himself more invaluable to the cartels was that he he was a phenomenal organizer of of logistics. I mean, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, a few wraps of a drug here. We're talking about the transportation of tons, tons and tons of drugs. And um, 
For that, you need lorries, you need you need uh, submarines they were using. They're using all sorts of things to ferry the drugs across the border into, into the United States. And that requires huge logistics. And, and of course, uh, there's a real challenge um, for the entrepreneur shifting that volume of drugs from Mexico into the US, is that you're going to be generating a colossal volume of dollars. Um, and in order to keep your business going, you need to get those dollars into the financial system. So yeah. th- this is the challenge that the cartel had. Yeah, yeah. He he had a, a major problem, which was the major problem in a way was his success because he, as you say, he was left with, and we are again, you know, these are billions of dollars. Um, but they're dollars, they're dollar bills, and they're actually quite grubby and filthy. I mean, they're they're the product of selling drugs on the street. And you can't walk into a bank despite I think it's Scarface. Um I think Scarface or is it Goodfellas? So Scarface, where they go into a bank with a hold all full of cash. Um, that can't happen. Um, in real life, that can't happen. There are cameras everywhere in American banks, and you are quizzed like no tomorrow as to what you're doing. So he got mountains of cash, nowhere for it to go. And he was smuggling it back into Mexico down the same routes that he was using to bring the drugs in. And then he discovered that he previously, I think, he had been using Bital, uh, but he discovered that, uh, and we're talking about, you know, his, it's not him personally. He's not walking into a bank. He never do that. It's far too risky. Um, but he's got associates everywhere and henchmen. Um, I mean, several thousand people working full-time in the, for the cartel. Um, and they realized that HSBC, um, which had expanded its branch network when it got into Mexico, just wasn't making any checks. And they could walk into branches. I mean, the the record deposit in one day, and I want to imagine, ask people listening to this, and yourself, Oliver, imagine you're in a bank, you're shuffling along in the queue, and the bloke or the woman in front of you deposits $933,000 in cash. And you're standing there. Now, if that was me, I'd be tapping my foot and exploding in rage, saying, for God's sake, can you hurry up? But they they <laughs> did it. They they deposited um, 18, $18,50,000 bundles and the spare which was $33,000. Now, you'd think that would set off all sorts of alarm. It didn't. Nobody batted an eyelid. Um, And Chapo realised that he was pushing at an open door. Um, And not only that, it was a door that uh, HSBC was possibly naively thinking, wow, we've got an amazing business here. These farmers, these poor people, they're not so poor. After all, they keep depositing tons and tons of money. And they suddenly got this bank in Mexico that it became one of the highest earners in the HSBC empire. It's like, wow, they're selling a lot of oranges. But yeah, yeah well, be- <laughs> but I, I talk in the book about how people would turn up and they'd ask them, um, you know, what their business was. I think there's a woman who was selling artichokes and lemons or something. 
and um, of which she grew in her backyard. And in the course of, I don't know, I can't remember, the year, I think, she deposited um, several hundred thousand dollars in cash. You know, what, why she was depositing in cash, I don't know, but it, it was crazy. And it reached a point where um, Chapo had made, and this is part of the genius of Chapo, the evil genius. He, he even had made boxes or pouches that exactly matched the teller's windows. So they go into the bank and um, they shove the pouch in um, full of dollar bills. Um, the, uh, it didn't even need to be counted. They just had to weigh it. Um, they knew how much it was and it'd be out again. The whole transaction, um, one of the Mexican authorities, one of the bank supervisors from Mexico City saw this happen. And his estimate, I think he said to me, was the whole thing took about 15, 20 seconds to put it in. and. That was happening on a on an industrial scale. I mean, you know, huge amounts. And just briefly before we get on from this, because this is so fascinating, the talk about the Cayman Islands branch of the HSBC, because there are so many different British aspects to this unutterably sordid tale. But that's one of well, the more sordid. Ones. This is one you, you with your first book, Moneyland. You're you're very familiar with um, the um, Chapo. Chapo also then had a pro- another problem, which was by Mexican law, um, if you deposit money into a Mexican account, Mexican bank accounts have to be held in pesos. Um, the peso is not a universal currency. It's very volatile. You can't really, nobody in the United States or Europe is going to take the peso. I mean, you, you don't do it. Um, what you want is the American dollar. So Chapo had dollars in cash, but now he wanted dollars to come. He wanted dollar bank accounts. And HSBC incredibly said, um, we can help with this. We we can, we can, um, of course, it wasn't done overtly. You know, Chapo wasn't sitting there and they said, we can do this. But they said to these customers who were depositing lots of money, would you like to use our Cayman Island service? And what that was, and this is where it gets really extraordinary, was that um, HSBC Mexico had a banking license in the Cayman Islands. They had no branch in the Cayman Islands. There's no, everyone on this call knows what a bank branch looks like, where you've got a door, a cash machine, a cash windows. You know, it looks, looks smells, feels like a bank. There was no bank. It was all done on a screen in Mexico City, but officially it was these were accounts held in the Cayman Islands. Um, and over the course of and the Cayman Islands, as is their want, they turned a blind eye to everything that was going on. I mean, eventually the pressure grew and they couldn't. But um, in the course of little more than a year, um, sixty thousand accounts were opened. 60,000 accounts opened in HSBC Mexico, Cayman Islands branch, and I stress there was no branch, um, holding 1.2 billion US dollars. Now, from the bank's point of view, that's stunning business. From anyone else's point of view, you think, my God, the, the warning bells, the red lights should have been flashing 
you know, who in Northwest Mexico has got $1.2 billion? Well, there's only one person. Um, you know, there's only one group who've got that amount of money. Farmers growing artichokes and lemons do not have $1.2 billion. So the managers in London, you know, they bought this bank, Bitalan. We had a great comment in the in the in the QA. And if you've got any more questions, please keep them coming. Rosalind saying something to add to the conversation, something I remember. The bank was Bitalan on a Friday and suddenly HSBC on the Monday. They did this all over the country, literally overnight. Every single branch has changed over the weekend. It's an astonishing change of corporate identity, never before seen with a foreign bank in Mexico. So HSBC had put this money, they'd bought this bank in Mexico. It's turned into this, you know, this astonishing cash generating machine. Did no one in London think, hang on a second? Um, yes and no. Um, the, um, uh, the, the HSBC is a very... Um, hierarchical structure and it's a very large structure i mean you know it's a pyramid you know it's just the the main pyramid among banks and the people at the very top were so busy with they bought this business called household you mentioned earlier the cultural change this took hsbc into consumer lending into credit cards in america um, and short-term loans it was a hugely problematic business then they had the 2008 crisis, but at the same time, because they wanted to be the world's biggest bank, um, if you're going to be the world's biggest bank, you need an investment bank. You need a bank, a part of the bank that deals with business deals, um, like J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. So they created, they set up, drove an investment bank. So all this activity was going on and they weren't just buying in Mexico they bought in Argentina they bought in Brazil they went right across the world buying things now back to Mexico the local managers um, there's one guy who goes up country to investigate what's going back on he comes back and he's horrified um, and he, he, he says that because the other thing I've not mentioned is that in, in Mexico um, uh, they have a, a phrase called um, the silver or the lead, um, which is you, you take the money or, you, and the lead, or the lead, and the lead is the bullet or your shot. Um, and it's used a lot, the silver or the, you know, do you want the silver or do you want the lead? And um, they discovered that their staff in some of these branches were petrified. The, the cartel people would come in, they'd hold up a picture at the window um, of the, say, the woman behind the counter would be a picture of her children. They'd just put their hand up, there'd be a photograph there. Um, she got the message, um, you know, take this money or your children die. Um, they were petrified. And various people went up country and, and did discover what was going on. And warnings were made and were issued that they thought that just by changing the compliance people um, and putting, as they saw it, better compliance people in, that would solve the problem. Now, the problem about compliance, which I'm sure you know about with your, your books, is that compliance in banking is the poor relation. Um, people, The people who make money in banks are the deal makers. Um, they're not the people who are the it's a bit like football. They're not the referees. The referees aren't the best paid people on the pitch. And um, the compliance people 
um, they weren't really up to the task. It was monumental, but um, and there weren't enough of them. And at the same time um, that I detail, HSBC was on this enormous profits push. If it wanted to be the biggest bank in the world, it had to drive the profits. They actually cut costs right across the bank. Um, so people were in compliance. They were losing their jobs. So all this was going on, and it was just a, I don't know, a, a bubbling cauldron of managerial cock-up, really. You do, um, you talk a bit about how um, there started to be a little bit of noise, particularly in the US, about what was happening, um, concern in the US, and they started to bring in some more in, potentially impressive looking people on the on the compliance side um but but how they had this sort of idea that they could just throw temporary employees at the problem and it would just solve it and that was it there was no real effort to engage with it as a, as a system yeah um effectively um uh three things happened um which or four actually one was the mexican authorities were telling the Americans in no uncertain terms what they what they knew was going on, because the volumes of dollars were so huge um, that uh, you know there was no disguising. You were talking literally billions of dollars. Um, the Mexican Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, they were very they woke up to it very quickly, or very very. I mean, eventually they they got on top of it. Um, in New York, um, a, a classic straight out of central casting New York cop called Frankie D. Gregorio, who's a wonderful man, um, he did a major drugs bust in Queens in New York. And that led to one of a, a major drugs person, Kingpin, who was working with Chapo. Anyway, it led to this guy using HSBC. This alerted people. That was one thing. Second thing was um, in the mountains of West Virginia, um, there was an attorney um, called Bill Eilenfeld who um, busted uh, a medical, a Medicare fraud. And the guy, the doctor, and this was a fairly blatant fraud, and he was also using HSBC. This led to Eilenfeld thinking, if HSBC is so lax with this guy, what are they like with others? And he got permission to set up a small unit to actually, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but he was literally in the mountains of West Virginia setting up this small unit to look at HSBC. And then the third thing which you allude to is that HSBC's solution when they became started to become aware, was classic. It was the classic throwing of quantity rather than quality. So they just went out and effectively hired an entire anti-money laundering department, which they based in Delaware. Um, but this was proved to be their undoing because one of the guys they hired was a guy called Everett Stern, and Everett Stern had previously applied to join the CIA and had been turned down. And he was very frustrated, wanted to serve his country. 
And he answered an ad for somebody who to join the anti-money laundering program of a major bank, international bank. That was HSBC. And when he got to Delaware, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was literally finding horror after horror of, of clear, blatant money laundering. Um, but no, nobody in the bank seemed to be taking any notice, taking it seriously. And when he was drawing it to, to his supervisor's attention, they would literally tell him to go away. And he was paid by the – these people were being paid by the by the quantity of files they were going to, not by the, not by the number of it, it, it cases they found, but how many files they managed to get through, um, which was completely the wrong way to be doing it. And he actually, um, I mean, he, you know, incredible. He went back to the CIA and said to the CIA guy who interviewed him, "I've got some information for you." And he became a whistleblower, and. Um, that's when everything started to come together against HSBC. Good question in the in the Q and A. I'm just asking whether HSBC employees were taking kickbacks. I mean, you mentioned that you know, particularly the staff in Mexico were offered the choice, the sort of silver or lead choice. Um, you know, if they weren't being killed, does that mean that they were? You know, were people being paid off, or was it was it more kind of just just intimidating? Um, I, I talk about there was a case that was found. Um, some cases were found where some bank managers, branch managers in um, northern Mexico, um, were clearly on the take and knew knew what was going on. Um, there were suspicions about some of the people in Mexico City. One guy in particular, um, but a lot of it was really. Um, really fear. I mean, I think we don't possibly, um, it's hard to imagine just how embedded and endemic the cartels are. And they rule entirely through fear. And the Sinaloa, um, which were the biggest, they, you, you do not cross them. I mean, that's it. You, you don't. And, you know, to, to ram that message home, you know, they, as, as I say, you know, they'd regularly leave bodies hanging from bridges with signs on. Uh, I mean, they were brutal beyond belief. And it was a mixture of both. And there's a there's a question for me asking if I was surprised by this story, um, considering all the research I've done. I think it's the details in a way. I mean, you know, we know that there's this huge volume of money laundering, but the but the details of the the sort of sordid nature of the corruption, you know, the special sized briefcases and yeah. and all that. I mean, it's it's also sordid, isn't it? I mean, that's what's so amazing. I think it's it's the collision of sordid with a banker's supposedly pucker um, as HSBC. Um, I mean, if this had been, I mean, Years ago, we had a bank called Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. That was riddled with corruption. This is this was not BCCI. This is HSBC. For heaven's sake, it's HSBC. And um, and it's that cocktail coming together of these sordid, as you use the word, sordid goings on in Mexico with. Um, you know, a, a massive tower at Canary Wharf and um, 
you know, but they did become, by the way, the world's big. At one point, they became the world's biggest bank. They they reached it. They got there. Achievement unlocked. I am. I but they do. Then then we have enter one of my personal heroes, Senator Carl Levin. Yeah. um, who ran the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation, and who I think has done some of the most valuable work, you know, did, did the most valuable work for decades in terms of uncovering the real secrets of, of criminality, of complex criminality, um, in, a, in, a, in an incredibly valuable way, I mean, a unique way. So can you talk a little bit about him and a little bit about what he was doing with regard to... Um, yeah, Senator Carl Levin is a a genuine towering figure of late 20th century um, American politics, American life. Um, When he died not that long ago, um, the New York Times ran a front page obituary. Um, President Biden was, uh, all the politicians were beside themselves with tributes. Um, He was a a lawyer, but uh, son of uh, uh, immigrants in Detroit and um, was believed passionately in two things, um, America and, um, uh, how can I put it, uh, upright, honourable behaviour. And those were the two things that sustained him. And uh, he eventually became a Democrat senator for Michigan and he was the longest serving Michigan senator. And he used his law and his beliefs to investigate. He he ran, he eventually became chair of um a, a Senate sub it's it's called the Permanent Subcommittee on, on Investigations, um, shortened to PSI, and it's probably the most powerful, one of the most powerful committees in Washington. And under Carl Levin, they um, exposed, um, you know, malpractices at Ford, Goldman Sachs, um, Enron. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. And to be honest, I I found myself, in fact, I'd say this in the book, I, I myself read law at university and None of my cohort um, ever became public lawyers. Um, They all went off to become city lawyers or or the commercial bar. And I found myself looking at some of the characters who in the end went for HSBC, Carl Levin being the the biggest, um, and thinking, you know, in the UK, we simply do not have people like this. Um, It is such a a gap in in our... public life we don't have them occasionally we use a high court judge to hold an inquiry but levin was a ta- was a you know repeating myself was a towering figure um incredibly meticulous careful and um he took up upon his he said to the people on his committee to the full-time staff i think we should take a look at hsbc i'm hearing things um and then he said something that, again, which happens all too rarely these days. He said to them, and I, I interview um, a, a couple of the people who worked for him in the book, but 
he told them to take as long as they want. You know, there was no, he didn't say we need it in six months' time. He said, take as long as you want. We're going to do this properly. And he realized, and this is a, a key thing with him, he realized that when you're dealing with the likes of car companies and banks and pharmaceutical companies, you put a foot wrong, you'll get shot. They will kill you. They will crucify you. Um, they, they employ the best lawyers in the world. You cannot put a foot wrong. So his solution to that was to be utterly meticulous, and that's what he was. And he launched this investigation into HSBC and money laundering. His, I mean, his investigation fed into the criminal investigation. So, so, so U.S. criminal agencies started investigating too. So, from one uh, towering political figure to a slightly less towering one. Um, good question in the chat. What role did George Osborne play <laughs> in this? Um, you know, uh, let's um, let's dissect the 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 possibly less a, a, a role in this that may play less well in the history books. Um. Yes, what, what happened was, um, moving very quickly, is that the all these different inquiries came together, came to a head, and um, the Americans said very firmly, and at this point, HSBC was really on the rack. They were being told, um, you know, we're, we're coming for you, and we're coming for you big time. And they were so horrified by what they'd seen, they wanted to bring criminal prosecutions against the bank. And um, as I say in the book, Frankie Di, Frankie Di, can't say, Frankie Di Gregorio, the New York cop, he'd even been with his team to London and interviewed senior people at the bank. It was that serious. So the Americans, the Departments of Justice, were wanted to make, an, you know, they wanted to go for HSBC. Interesting thing was, they were very conscious that no bank, no banker was jailed over 2008. And this was a haunting, recurring theme for the Americans and also for the British and other bank, other countries. No banker was jailed in 2008. So we're now 2012, and the Americans make it plain to the um Financial Services Authority, as was in the UK, and to our government, that they are going to bring prosecutions against our biggest bank. Um, and out of the blue, um, and what's in the book is the email traffic between the different officials um, on the American side. And then what happened was that literally George Osborne wrote a letter to Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner, who, who were the two most senior American. They were his equivalents in America, uh, effectively. And basically, the threat was, um, if you do this, um, you run the risk of bringing down HSBC. Not only that, you then went, the FCA, F -F FSA went on, you run the risk of bringing down the entire banking system. Now, um, this caused the Americans, uh, uh, and he lobbied very hard, did Osborne. I mean, he, he spoke at the 2012 Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. Um, he stood up and told the 
the Tory conference that he was going to crack down hard on bankers. He then got on a plane to Tokyo to that year's IMF meeting, where on the side on the side of the conference, he met Geithner and Bernanke. He'd arranged to meet them to effectively push the case as to why prosecutions against HSBC were a bad idea. The Americans, um, want for a better word, they, they panicked. Um, they thought, they believed him. Um, and it later turned out that no evidence was ever offered as to whether there was no, no analytical evidence offered as to whether it would be the case. If you prosecute, I mean, seriously, if you prosecute three or four senior bankers at a bank the size of HSBC, is it really going to make all the people who have banked with HSBC to stop banking there, is it really going to even go on and lead to the collapse of um, you know, Western banking? In my view, and, and others quoted in the book, nonsense. But this was the point being made. And Osborne also tried to make another argument, which was dismissed, which was that he claimed that HSBC was being singled out because it was British and non-American. And the Americans just poo-pooed this completely and said, you're joking. It's got nothing to do with that. Um, and his argument won, and that's what happened. And, uh, and instead of bringing a prosecution, criminal prosecutions, um, which might have seen HSBC bankers go to jail, um, HSBC agreed. Uh, it's admitted everything, by the way. Everything I've said on this call was admitted. Um, 30, 31-page admission. Um, they admitted everything. They accepted a $1.9 billion fine, which was the largest fine in American history. Um, and they also agreed to undergo a, a five-year rehab program to reform their ways. Um, and no banker was jailed, no banker was prosecuted. And then there's a, a subtext to this as well, which was by this time, um, Stephen Green um, had become Lord Green, and he was in George Osborne's government with David Cameron as a British trade minister. So um, there you are. <laughs> I can't. I was on mute. $1.2 billion is about four 1. months. 1.9. So 1. 1. Okay, 1.9 is about six months worth of cash payments into HSBC Mexico. Um, I mean, it was they, they did pretty well um, out of that. Well, it's actually, um, it's actually worse than that. $1.9 billion record amount in American history, a huge amount of money. But $1.9 billion was actually only five weeks profit of the entire bank. And... Um, um, you know, the way these banks calculate, I mean, I, I always think it's a bit like um, when you read about a footballer being fined a week's wages in the premiership and you think that's really going to hurt them. Um, it's a bit like that. And, um, it, you know, it's written down as the cost of doing business um, and they sail on. Um, a few questions in the chat I want to rattle through in the, well, we've got the last last eight minutes or so. Um, do you think members of the board were aware of the money laundering or were they just sort of 
you know, see no evil, hear no evil about it. I mean, I'm wondering to what extent, if there had been criminal pr- prosecutions, how high it could theoretically have gone, had it gone? Um, I think it would have gone very high. Um, I've got to be careful for libel reasons. Yeah, um, but the fact, the fact that um, the New York cop came to London with a team and went to Canary Wharf and investigated people here, uh, people in the UK, that says they weren't people in Mexico. Um, and um, I think it would have gone to the very top. Um, uh, certainly uh, the country managers, um, regional managers, um, did they know? Um, towards the end, they knew. Um, there's a scene in the book where Michael Gagan, who was the number two to Green, he Michael Gagan specialised in doing these sort of... Um, glad-handing ambassadorial tours of the world where he would literally go from country to country meeting the great and the good and clients. And he flew into Mexico thinking he was doing that and was literally taken to a, you know, was asked to go to an urgent meeting with the bank super, the banking authorities. And that's when, uh, you know, they, they described the look on his face when he was told what was going on. And um, he knew from then on. Um, did they know before? Well, warnings were simply ignored. Um, people were warning like mad, and they were saying, we need more people, things are going... I mean, there's lots of warnings that are just being ignored. Um, I think, it, as you say, it's just see no evil, hear no evil. You know, I think it's more like that. But um, ultimately, they're responsible. So what happened to HSBC Mexico? Um, a question from Emma Coe in the chat. What happened to HSBC Mexico after this? And I suppose also she asked, what happened to El Chapo? Uh, well, um, uh, HSBC Mexico thrives, survives, doing very well. Um, now um, much more, I hope, much more tightly run. Um, El Chapo, um, uh, and this is a, point made um, uh, in the book that El Chapo eventually, I mean, he, he uh, just a bit more about El Chapo. I mean, uh, El, El Chapo was not just a barbaric criminal, but he was also a, a folk hero in Mexico to many people, um, partly because the Sinaloa cartel, I mean, they would, uh, during COVID, they handed out food parcels. Um, they handed out SUV trucks when parts of the area were flooded. Um, and Chapo and his family they were folk heroes. And um, he escaped twice from prison, each time using incredible escape techniques. I mean, the one that's most famous was the, the mile-long tunnel he, that was dug under his cell in the high-security prison. He, he literally, the only part of the cell where he wasn't on camera was the shower and the and the and the loo. So he pops the shower, he sits on the bed, um, he goes, he pops over to the shower toilet area and doesn't come back. And eventually they're rich, oh my God, he's not come back. Um, they eventually, by the time they get to his cell, he is a mile away. The tunnel was a mile long. And it had railway tracks, air conditioning, and lighting. I and mean, this is not one of those 
tunnels that we read about in Colditz or anything like that. This is this is incredible. Um, eventually caught, eventually extradited to the US. Um, he got life plus 30 years. How that works, I'm never entirely sure. Um, but 30 years beyond his life. Um, he's in the Supermax jail in Arizona, which is the um, the highest security prison in the United States. It's got the uh, one of the Oklahoma bombers. It's got Al-Qaeda. It's got all sorts of bad people in there. And um, he's effectively in not far off solitary confinement. Um, he went to jail, and the American politician Elizabeth Warren she made this point, and I quote her in the book, where she does not talk about El Chapo, but she makes the point that if you deal in drugs in the United States um, and you're caught three times, you're going to jail for a long time. Um, uh, but the people who launder the money or facilitate the laundry, the enablers, um, the City of London and the bankers, etc., allow this stuff to happen, nothing happens to them. Very important, a very important point. And, and I mean, I just on, on that point, you know, would the drug cartels have been able to get as big and powerful as they did without HSBC? I mean, I know it's a difficult question. But um, I suppose that no, it's a perfectly fair question. I, the the, the reason, come back to why the Cayman Islands were so important, was that they really wanted dollars because. Um, if you're if you're buying if you're buying a car if you're educating your children privately and a lot of these people do um and you're buying villas houses chapo had two private zoos um uh for panthers and lions and things i mean um but you can't pay in dirty dollar notes uh, you, you you need proper bank accounts with proper finance, proper credit cards. You you can't buy trucks. Um, I mean, they, they they proved that HSB, HSBC's laundering enabled him to buy his aircraft. Um, he had a fleet of aircraft. Um, you can't buy an aircraft in cash. So the answer is it was hugely important. It was vital. Um, I think the two go hand in hand. I think the 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 blind eye that we have turned particularly in the UK, um, to money laundering and the City of London and everything to go with that are, are offshore tax havens, which are, many of which, as you know, are protected by us, whether it's the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands. These are our, our territories. Um, and we turn a blind eye to this stuff. Yeah. Thank, well, look, thank you. We have reached 7.30. It's flown by. Um, I could have could have kept going for ages. And sorry if you haven't got to your questions in the chat, but thank you for all the questions that you sent in. I think Rosie is now going to say a few words. And before she does, I would just thoroughly encourage all of you to buy Chris's book. It doesn't look like this in reality. This is a kind of A4 version. <laughs> smaller and it, it's I'm not I'm going to say pocket size, but it is closer to pocket size it's than that. It's smaller than that. Yeah, it's it's it is a it is a, a real life thriller. Um, which will leave you um, astounded and appalled, but also very entertained. Okay. But now, while I've got you both, Oliver, I think this is a question for you. I want to know what you thought about the fact that Prince Charles 
deposited almost a million quid. <laughs> and the Charity Commission has said, this is fine. I chair Feeding Britain. If I tried to deposit a million quid with whatever benefits in my heart about what I was doing, there's no way. <laughs> I I couldn't agree more. I'm I'm I don't even know where to begin with that story. Um, I, mean, I know that the world is different if you're a member of the royal family because that's what being a member of the royal family is. But it, it's so extraordinary that I, yeah I don't even know where to begin knowing what to think about that. Um, you know it it is incredible, but it does I think highlight a really interesting aspect of money laundering, which is the role that cash plays, cash money. Um, you know, it's not the only way to launder money. There are many other ways, but a key way is, is cash money. And the and the money that they use are primarily dollars and euros, but also pounds, Canadian dollars, Aussie dollars, and so on. And even though, and it's an amazing fact that even though cash usage by ordinary people falls year after year after year, we use plastic far more than we use cash. The amount of cash in circulation dollars and euros and pounds and so on increases by 10 8 10 9 11% every year again and again and again and, and no one in the central banks appears to think hang on a second who's using all this this incredible volumes of cash that, that's being printed there is supposedly a trillion dollars in paper money in us dollars circulating outside the united states and like i mean el chapo accounts for some of that but there's a lot of other you know El Chapo's out there, you know, and and it is an amazing fact. The and another just another example of our Western complicity in something that we spend a lot of time condemning. Well, that leaves us all on a kind of tenterhook of uh, that's a hell of a lot of money, uh, probably up to not a lot of good. Um, thank you both very very much. Um, Chris's book, as Oliver said, it's absolutely great, but so is Butler to the world, and they're a great treat duo to read uh, and you get a very good and rather bad at the same time picture of what is going on in our banking systems anyway thank you all very much for joining us uh come back soon and we'll see you again and oliver and chris thanks so much you've been terrific good night thank you thank you, thank you. bye bye